Well, let's spend a moment in prayer together before we get into the Word of God tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day that you've given us. It is a beautiful day because it is the Lord's Day. It is the day that we have gathered together. We even hear the, the patter of rain on the roof, and we're always thankful that that's a reminder that you look out for us and that you are with us. We're reminded of your promise to Noah that you would never flood the world. You are a promise-keeping God. You are a God who keeps covenant. And tonight, Lord, I pray that we would be all the more convinced that you are a God who keeps covenant, that you are a promise-keeping God. And I pray that this would encourage us in our walk with Christ, encourage us in our salvation, that we who know Christ are secured for all time. And I pray that tonight would solidify and make that truth all the clearer in our hearts. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to describe a scene to you, and it's a true story. Very likely it was early in the morning. It might have been a little later. But a day that started as a day normally would, kind of peacefully and quietly, became very chaotic very quickly. Very tense, very dramatic. That day happened in Babylon. The prophet Ezekiel, who had been in exile there since 597 B.C., now, a few years later, on this normally quiet morning, a crowd was gathering around him, perhaps knocking at his door, eager to hear from him. And he came out and he spoke to them, and this crowd was a large crowd. And they were tense. They were fearful. They had feelings like hopelessness and despair. And they hung on every word he said. Why is this? Well, basically, the Jews listening to Ezekiel that morning had reached the very bottom of despair, the bottom of hopelessness. Their last hope was gone. They had been in exile for so long, and it seemed like there was no hope for the future And among the words spoken to the Jews in exile that particular morning were the words we find in Ezekiel 37, which is our text for tonight. So turn to Ezekiel 37. These are some of the words that Ezekiel spoke to that crowd. And in this text, we come to one of the most, I think, shocking and dramatic scenes in all of Scripture. The Valley of Dry Bones. Our consideration of this text, we're still technically in our mini-series, Old Testament Witnesses, which is actually for the purpose of showing a future intermediate kingdom of Christ on earth without necessarily referencing Israel. But frankly, it's impossible not to reference Israel because they're so intertwined. Uh, I still have an upcoming set of series technically only on Israel, But just to make certain that I fulfill the more general purpose of showing an intermediate kingdom, before we really get into the text, let me give you some numerous, uh, several features of this text, rather, that demonstrate that this is not speaking of a time that's now, nor can it be speaking of the final state. It has to be speaking of some time in between. Very quickly, four features that show us that this is speaking of an intermediate time. First of all, we're going to see a migration to Israel worldwide. 
That's not happening now. It's not happening in the final state. That's not part of the final state. We'll see that in verse 12. Second feature, we're going to see people who are first without the Holy Spirit and then with the Holy Spirit. That's certainly not indicative of the final state. Third, we're going to see a very recent repentance from idolatry by Jews. That hasn't happened now and it's not happening in the final state. In the final state, that's already taken care of, but there's an event. And fourth, we're going to see a temple in Israel. That's not in the final state either. In the final state, there is no temple. God is the sanctuary. God is the temple. But my hope is we go through this just vast array of passages. First, for the coming months in what you call biblical theology. Biblical theology is when you take the truth of the millennium as it's presented in Scripture, as it shows itself in the Bible. And then we'll do it in systematic theology. That's where you take all the ideas of the millennium topically. My hope for you as we drive these nails as deeply as possible is that you have these glorious truths so deeply embedded in you that if somebody came up to you and just said, tell me about the kingdom of God, you could wax eloquent for quite some time because you know that your Bible is just replete with examples of this kingdom. It's been implanted in your minds, in your hearts. And of course, the ultimate outcome of that is Colossians 3, that you set your minds on things above. I don't want you to be intimidated or afraid of Bible prophecy. A great Old Testament mind of the past that I'm going to reference numerous times tonight, the double doctorate, eminent Dr. Merrill Unger, he wrote this back in 1949. Quote, It is astonishing how many students of the Word approach such highly wrought symbolic portions of prophetic scripture like Ezekiel, Daniel, or Revelation with an emotion somewhat akin to terror, which seems to paralyze them into an agnostic attitude of, I don't know, I can't know. There's an entire school of thought that says when it comes to the end times, you should all just, the goal is to be nice to one another rather than to find out what's actually true. We can know how, by observing the text and comparing the text with the vast quantities of scripture Comparing Scripture to Scripture. Now, I mostly just want to walk through this stunning scene together to join Ezekiel in what I would guess would be his astounded state when he sees this ghastly sight, millions of human bones strewn throughout this valley in his vision. And so I just want to walk through the the drama and we'll divide the drama kind of into four sections and I'll give them to you up front and then as we go as well. But... We're going to look at first the scene and God's question. The scene and God's question. Then we'll look at the return and its stages. The return and its stages. And I'll give these to you again. Thirdly, we'll look at the people and their unity. The people and their unity. And then finally, we'll look at the king and his kingdom. And then we'll go back and I'll tell you why Ezekiel had so many people knocking on his door that particular morning. First, let's look at the scene and God's question. The scene and God's question. Ezekiel 37, 1. The hand of Yahweh was upon me. And he brought me out by the spirit of Yahweh and caused me to rest in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them all around. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. 
The hand of God is upon Ezekiel. What does that mean? It just means that he's taken away by vision to the stage for this scene. And he just describes it as the middle of the valley. Don't worry about where this valley is. That's irrelevant to this vision, as we'll see. It's just a valley. It's just a scene. It's a set. The valley is full of human bones and they're dried. They've been bleached in the sun. They've been there for a very long time. The bones aren't in piles. They haven't been buried. They're just scattered where they fell. This might be imagined as a great battlefield in which the countless dead were left to have their flesh picked and eaten by birds and scavengers until days pass into weeks, into months. And the bones are now dry, whitened by the sun. And your imagination could hear the ancient echoes of clashing swords and screaming men and could see the now-gone puddles of blood everywhere. Now, the text doesn't say this was a scene of a great battle, but it is going to say that when they're raised, they make a great army. But somebody who's walking through a valley of dried bones like this, that's the only option they could conceive of as being the cause of this mass death. And so it's just a, a scene of violence. It's a scene of grotesque destruction and death. And God asks Ezekiel a question. Verse 3, he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? What a question. There's no blood, there's no flesh, there's no muscle, no tissue, no sinews, no organs. There's nothing to do CPR on. There's nothing to put an oxygen mask on. God is emphasizing the hopelessness of the situation by asking, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers, in respect and reverence. He can't possibly know the answer to that question. So his, his answer simply is, Oh Lord Yahweh, you know. Ezekiel throws himself onto the sovereignty of God. Ezekiel is helpless. He's powerless to answer. And so he says, You know. You're the only one who knows. And in fact, this valley filled with dried bones is quite a dramatic picture of Israel. It's quite a picture of the hopelessness that she was under. Israel was in her absolute heyday, in the glory days, in the days of Solomon. But Solomon disgraced himself with idolatry in the later years of his reign. He caused Israel to spiritually go astray. Very shortly into the reign of his son, Rehoboam, the kingdom was split in two with the ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin stayed loyal to Yahweh. They stayed loyal to the prescribed temple worship in Jerusalem. But in the northern kingdom, their troubles began pretty quickly. In 732 BC, the northern kingdom began to suffer greatly at the hands of the Assyrians until finally in 722 BC, they were completely decimated. The ten tribes were either killed or carried off to Assyria, never to be heard from again. And now Judah was standing alone as the sole Jewish state on earth. Her own disobedience eventually led to three major incursions by the now-dominant Babylonians in 605, then 597, and 587, leading into 586, with each incursion resulting in carried-off citizens and the final invasion resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, literally every stone of the temple thrown down. There was nothing left. And now there is no nation on earth, not one little piece of land that could be called Israel. Nowhere. 
Spiritually speaking, Israel was and is a valley of dried bones. Alive once, but long conquered, long dead. There's no hope for a valley of dead bones. What well, a reminder to all of us of the reality of Ephesians 2.1 that you were dead in your transgressions and sins and that you followed solely after your father, the devil. It's a picture of spiritual death. And so when God asks this question, can these bones live? And as Ezekiel respectfully defers trying to answer, we can answer, no, they can't live unless God does the impossible. And in fact, God says that this is precisely what he's going to do. And so he describes to Ezekiel what's going to happen. And he tells Ezekiel that Ezekiel is going to be involved with this. Verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am Yahweh. But notice something here, this resurrection that God is doing, this is described in two stages, kind of two phases. Most important is listed first, breath, I will cause breath to enter you. But that happens second. What happens first? Verse six, the flesh, the sinews, the skin is miraculously added back to the bones. Where do we see this before? We see this in Genesis chapter two. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the man became a living being. So first God put the man physically together, his body together, then breathed life into him. Same process that he's describing to Ezekiel here. So not only does God say this is about to happen to these dead bones in the valley, but Ezekiel's going to speak the word to make it happen. Well, that's the scene and God's question. Now, the second section of this drama we'll call the return and its stages. The return and its stages. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rumbling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh came up upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these who were killed, that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great military force. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. Now, what's happening here? First of all, I am so glad I'm not Ezekiel because I would have failed the Lord and fainted like a little girl. And seeing all these bones rattling together, that would have been it for me. 
But Ezekiel was a manly man and God gave him the strength to see this and to understand what it was about. But what's happening here? Is this a picture of physical resurrection? Well, there's quite a few available interpretations of the meaning of this vision. And let me give you several views that are, are pretty popular. The first we'll just call the general resurrection view. The general resurrection view says that this vision is just generally speaking a prediction of physical resurrection of all who have faith in God from any age. But verse 11 here is very clear that this is the whole house of Israel. And we know that last time that whenever Ezekiel uses the term Israel, it is always a technical term referring to the ethnic 12 tribes, not any sort of spiritualizing the people of God in general. That's the general resurrection view. That one doesn't hold. There is the restoration and resurrection view. The restoration and resurrection view says that this is a a vision predicting both the restoration of Israel someday and the physical resurrection of all the faithful dead Jews. And that seems to be a little bit closer. But while verse 12 calls this the graves of God's people, verses 1 and 2 pictures this scene as a valley of bones just strewn all over the place. So it's not actually graves. And verse 12 is clear that even if this is speaking of physical resurrection, it's only Jews who live in other countries because they're coming back to Israel. And so graves then must become symbolic of the nation as if it were buried somewhere among all the Gentile nations. So the restoration and resurrection view is not helpful. Another view I might call the spiritual resurrection of individuals, the spiritual resurrection or the conversion of individuals. This is more the the spiritualized view that Ezekiel 37 is simply symbolic of individual salvation in general. Now, I will say this. It is an absolutely effective and true illustration of individual salvation, but the context is national Israel. The context of all of Ezekiel 33 through 39 is national Israel. And then some take this as the spiritual conversion of the church. The spiritual conversion of the church that Ezekiel 37 is spiritualized to represent the salvation of people during our age, during the church age, with Israel now defunct and the church is the new Israel. The spiritual conversion of the church. This ignores, though, the hundreds of other passages in the Old Testament that describes Israel's future restoration and collectively uh, to the church. We are not Israel. We are grafted into Israel. But there is a, a clear distinction. Merrill Unger writes again, it is lamentable to discover how widespread and popular this pernicious practice is What practice? That of saying, well, the church is the new Israel. A little interesting note here about scholars who are hesitant to take this passage as a literal restoration of national Israel. The absolutely brilliant 19th century Old Testament scholar Carl Friedrich Kyle, he rightly proves from the text of Ezekiel 37 that this is the raising to life of Israel nationally. But then he pulls back and he cautions against being too literal in using this to give any Jews hope for a future peaceful kingdom on earth. Merrill Unger says of Kyle, quote, he is somewhat like a cow giving a good bucket of milk and then kicking it over. Absolutely true. Now, what is this passage? 
This is to be taken as symbolic of the spiritual deadness of Israel as a nation. This particular passage is not speaking of physical resurrection of anyone. That's not the point of this passage. It is an illustration. Now, obviously, the Bible teaches a literal bodily resurrection for individual believers in the future. We all believe that. Jesus himself taught this truth. John 5, 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So while we don't just randomly make passages symbolic that don't fit a particular theological system, if we take it literally, it's also important to simply let the text speak for itself because much of prophecy is given in symbolism. Let me give you a couple of hints we have that this is symbolic. The first hint we get is in verse 11. The bones themselves are speaking. That's clearly symbolic. Bones don't speak. And so that tells us there's some heavy symbolism happening here. And then another reason, another hint, in verse 12, God says he would open their graves and cause them to come out of their graves. And that certainly sounds like resurrection, but they weren't in graves. They were bones scattered throughout the valley. And so graves becomes symbolic for the spiritual deadness of Israel, their deadness around the world. Resurrection of the dead is taught elsewhere in Scripture. It doesn't require this passage for it to be well established. And in fact, we could get even more specific. This is referring very precisely to the Jews who are alive on earth at the end of the Great Tribulation. The Jews who are alive on earth at the end of the Great Tribulation, the time of rehabilitation and restoration of the nation. The dead bones are the living Jews during the Great Tribulation. Why are they pictured as dead? Because they're spiritually dead. They, they have not yet come to faith in Christ. We know that the godly Jews of Old Testament Israel will be gathered to the kingdom. We understand this from Matthew 8 and Luke 13. This is not the teaching about the Old Testament saints being raised from the dead, generally speaking, in physical form. That's not what this is about. The Old Testament saints are most likely raised as a group, not at the same time as the church-age saints. The church-age saints are raised at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, but at the end of the Great Tribulation, that seems to be the time when the Old Testament saints are raised. Daniel 12, 2 gives us a hint to this. But Jesus himself gave particular attention to the living Jews on earth at the time, at the end of the Great Tribulation. Matthew 25, when describing the judgment of the return of Christ, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. These are Jews of whom five will follow the bridegroom at the wedding five do not and they're locked out that is speaking of the judgment of the living jews on earth at that time zechariah 13 8 and 9 indicates that one third of the jews on the earth will survive the judgment of god and they'll be refined as through fire and i will say they are my people and they will say yahweh is my god now i mentioned in verses four through six that the resurrection that's described here seems to happen in two phases, the same two steps as the original creation of Adam in Genesis 2. And you may have noticed that those same two steps are given again in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. The reconstitution of the flesh happens in verses 7 and 8, and the giving of the breath of life happens in verses 9 and 10. So we've established that this vision 
is about the restoration of the nation of Israel at the end of the Great Tribulation and, and specifically dealing with the living Jews on earth at that time, this two-phase description now becomes extremely important. This should make us lean very heavily toward the likelihood that when Israel is first returned to the land at the end of the Great Tribulation, they will be returned as an unconverted people. An unconverted people. Zechariah 12.10 says, When the Jews look upon Christ whom they have pierced, they will mourn for Him and repent. What does that seem to indicate? seems to indicate a gathering together with Christ, the looking upon Him whom they have pierced. And that will be the catalyst for verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. What does this mean? What this means is an event whereby all the living Jews on earth at that time are brought to faith in Christ at the same time. You talk about revival, that'll be the greatest one ever seen in history. Nothing like it. This seems to be describing a gathering together and then a glorious assignment of the lands given to the newly regenerated people. Ezekiel 48 delineates exactly what land goes to what tribes. And so the people will be placed according to this plan. Again, Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 indicates only one third of the Jews on earth will survive either the great tribulation or the judgment of Christ. Maybe a combination of both. But in any case, the case is very strong for the regathering to happen first followed immediately by the spiritual regeneration of the people. When they look on Him whom they have pierced, there's no reason not to take that literally, that they're looking at Christ. And as a people realize the vastness of their mistake and come to faith. So we've observed the scene and God's question, the return and its stages. Let's look at the third section of this drama, the people and their unity. The people and their unity. Now, to understand this next section, I think it'd be helpful first to be reminded of God's covenant with David. Because there's a challenging portion to God's covenant with David that I think the next number of verses help explain quite well. God's covenant with David is found in 2 Samuel 7, and I'll just read it to you. It begins in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. We're good with this. We're like, oh, this is beautiful. This is Messiah. And then when he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. Oh no, what happened to your... And now we panic a little bit. The covenant seems clean and clear, very crisp. And we understand this to be ultimately referring to Christ right up to the point that God promises that if a son of David sins, God will discipline him. So clearly that part can't be speaking of Christ. What son of David committed sin which caused the discipline of the nation in one particular way? I've already mentioned the sin of Solomon which led to the weakness of his son Rehoboam, which led to the split of God's people. But now, in the ultimate restoration, God makes a statement and he declares that this breach, this discipline, 
will be rescinded. It will be undone. Verse 15. The word of Yahweh came again to me saying, Now as for you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel, his companions. Some think that these sticks are somehow uh, symbolic of a ruler's scepter. There's nothing here to say that though. There's no reason to see this anything more than a couple of flat pieces of wood which can be written on. One is labeled for Judah, the southern kingdom. One is labeled for Joseph, who is the father of Manasseh and Ephraim, the two premier tribes of the northern kingdom. Now remember, Ezekiel has an audience when he's doing this. The people have gathered around him on this morning. They're hanging on every word he's saying. And in this illustration, he was to demonstrate that their nation would be unified once again. And how's he going to illustrate this? Verse 17. Then draw them, that is the sticks, the pieces of wood together for yourself to one another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the land of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you shall write will be in your hand before their eyes. Now, I've mentioned this before, but just to be clear from this text here, some have said that this doesn't prove anything about a future kingdom. This is just about the exile, the return But it's so important to remember that, and we saw this when we went through Ezra and Nehemiah, that less than 50,000 Jews total ever returned from the exile. That's not a comprehensive national return. And they only came from one place, Babylon. But Ezekiel gives clarity here. Verse 21, And speak to them, thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations, plural, where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will also no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their places of habitation in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. After the return from exile, even those who did return, Ezra and Nehemiah were continually dealing with rebellion, continually dealing with them going off track, off base. But verse 23 indicates a now sanctified, unrebellious people. What about the ten tribes? What about those tribes who were taken to Assyria and never returned after their exile? They are, in fact, often referred to as the lost tribes. What happened to them? Well, there were, as a matter of fact, at least a few of the ten tribes that had come back to the southern kingdom. Why? They couldn't stand the apostasy in the northern kingdom. And so they left. They migrated south. In 941 B.C., when Asa was king of Judah, this was Solomon's great-grandson, 
Many migrated south to be part of the nation still faithful to God. Second Chronicles 15.9 says, And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, that's in the north, who sojourned with them, for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that Yahweh as God was with him, was with the king of the southern kingdom. It happened again under King Joash, happened again under King Hezekiah. Large groups would move south to get away from the idolatry of the northern kingdom. In fact, the last group that moved south came just five years before the Assyrians decimated the northern kingdom. And of course, eventually the southern kingdom, though, was overcome by its own sin. God disciplined them as the Babylonians came. So were those ten tribes, the the few that trickled back down to the south, were those enough to constitute the total return of the twelve tribes of Israel? Are the vast majority of the descendants of the ten tribes now just considered lost tribes? We would say no. As a matter of fact, I'm always thankful when the Lord brings along a man who wants to spend his life on one really weird question. And this man's name was John Wilkinson over a hundred years ago, actually. And he wrote a book in 1921 called Israel, My Glory. And he made a very strong case that the vast number of descendants of Jews taken by the Assyrians are still where they were taken, which today would be around the region of Lake Urmia in Iran, that they're still there. Certainly over many centuries, they scattered all over the world, but the scriptural evidence is that there are still descendants of the Jews in what used to be Assyria. Isaiah 11, verse 11 and verse 16 says that Assyria will be one of the regions of the world from which God pulls back his people from Assyria. And certainly the prophets all believe the northern tribes to be somewhere in the world. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 49, Jeremiah 3 all says that all the tribes are scattered around the world. So when God says in verse 21 that he'll gather them from every side, he means from every place in the world. Every place. And so we're building this picture here. The, the people regathered. They're given new spiritual life. There's only one piece missing, and that's the centerpiece. We've seen the scene and God's question, the return and its stages, the people and their unity. The fourth section, though, we'll call the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. This is the, the final centerpiece here. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God is giving tremendous hope to this crowd that is clamoring around him and so eager to receive hope on this particular morning. And now he reaches one of the climactic points of the long message he's given them this morning. Verse 24. And my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my judgments and keep my statutes and do them. Clear reference to the coming new covenant. Now we have to briefly introduce kind of an interesting puzzle in Ezekiel. And that puzzle is, who is my servant David? Later on in Ezekiel 45, 46, and 48, there's an unnamed prince. And that prince becomes very, very prominent. Many see that prince as Jesus himself. When we get there, I'll give you some compelling reasons that the prince is not Jesus but a very special representative to Israel. Who's the most likely candidate to represent Jesus himself to the nation of Israel? It's going to be David, of course. But here, 
In Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David must be speaking of Christ. It must be speaking of Christ. And there's several good reasons for this. First of all, right here in this verse, in this section, there's a strong association with the king and with the word of God. That makes a very strong case for Jesus, who is the king and who is the word of God. The second hint we get, verse 22 indicates one king for all of them as the united Israel. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can affect that unification. And the third hint we get here, if the David spoken of in verses 24 through 28 is actually David himself, then Christ has been completely skipped and not even mentioned, which would be pretty unlikely in this scenario. And so as King Jesus takes his rightful place as he establishes his kingdom, Ezekiel now highlights a number of features of this new world order under Christ. And I'm going to divide this into three. We'll spend most of our time on the first feature of the kingdom, and then I'll just highlight the last two. The first feature is restoration to the land forever. Restoration to the land forever. Verse 25. They will inhabit the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, which your fathers inhabited, and they will inhabit it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Now notice that this is specifically the land I gave to, your, to Jacob, my servant, which your fathers inhabited. What is the land given to Jacob? It's the same as the land given to Isaac, the same as the land given to Abraham. Genesis fifteen eighteen. On that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your seed, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, scholars differ on how to draw the map. I've even taken a shot at it myself. But there are two things are certain. First of all, this is extensively more land than is currently defined as Israel. And secondly, you can't spiritualize this away. These are very specific borders. Specific enough that there are maps that you can Google. Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Boom, 10 million hits. God made this promise so clear, so abundantly obvious to Abram, that even after he separated from Lot, how did he make this promise clear to him? Genesis 13, beginning in verse 14. God said to Abram, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. You can't get more clear than that. Now, some of you might wonder, why do we keep bringing up the land promises? Why is that important? Well, let me give you three reasons. A theological reason, a biblical reason, and a relational reason. Because I I want you to get why this is so important. The, The theological reason is simply this. If God was that specific in his unconditional promise to Abraham, and if God continues throughout the Old Testament to reiterate this promise, what kind of God is he if he suddenly redefines that away or spiritualizes it with the advent of the New Testament revelation. It either means God didn't mean what he said or that he's changing the meaning to now mean something completely different. 
and expecting people to buy that. I don't buy that. When God makes an unconditional promise, He keeps that unconditional promise. That's a theological reason. Let me give you a biblical reason. As you've already seen, the restoration to the land is brought up in every single major millennial passage that we get to in the Old Testament. And if you, if you say, Pastor, why do you keep rambling on about this? I'm not. It's the Bible that keeps doing this. And just in case anyone believes the tired argument that land promises are absent from the New Testament and that somehow that's proof that those promises have changed later in our Millennium Series, I'm going to do a whole mini-series on the promised land, and I'm going to show you that that's a myth, that the New Testament does address the land promises. And just for grins, I'm going to give you three examples right now. We'll do many more in the coming months. But first of all, James 1, verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion, greetings. James uses the familiar term dispersion, diaspora. The dispersion to reference these Jewish Christians who are, who are scattered due to Stephen's murder and the persecution that followed. But why does he use that term? You're the scattered ones, the diaspora. That always means, always, it's a technical term that means those who are not at home, those who are not in their land, those who are, are aliens somewhere else. If there's not a promised land to return to, then the term diaspora is meaningless. Second example, it's similar, but I think even more direct. 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, for whatever reason, the Legacy Standard Bible chose to edit out a word. In Greek, it is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who, are, who reside as aliens of the dispersion, the diaspora. Same reason as James 1. If they're not exiled away from their home, then diaspora doesn't mean anything. Here's a third example, just for grins. Revelation 11 tells the gripping story of the two prophetic witnesses who will preach the gospel during the Great Tribulation. People will try to kill them, but God will miraculously spare them until their ministry is finished after three and a half years. And then they're killed. But the whole time, where are they preaching? Where's the center of this ministry? They're in Jerusalem. They're not in New York City. They're not in Paris. They're not in London. They're in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center stage for all the activity of the end times, including, by the way, where Antichrist will set himself up to be worshipped. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says that Antichrist will take his seat in the sanctuary of God. That is in, in Jerusalem. That there will be a tribulation temple built. And Antichrist will seat himself in it, exhibiting himself as being God. So right before the end of the Great Tribulation, Jerusalem is the center stage. And where is Christ returning to, according to Zechariah and Joel? Jerusalem. That's where he's coming. This will be where God affects the rescue of local faithful Jews. Joel 2.32, it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered for on Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape as Yahweh has said, even among the survivors whom Yahweh calls. That's the theological reason and the biblical reason. Let me give you a relational reason that we keep emphasizing the land promises to Israel. The relational reason 
is a a scenario I'll give you. Your great-great-grandfather was given a thousand acres of prime land over a hundred years ago. The land has a deed. The deed is filed in the county courthouse. But your great-grandfather was forced off his land by squatters, even killing many of the family. Just a few of them escaped with their lives. Your great-grandfather couldn't get back on his own land, and so he continued having children and grandchildren not living on his land. By the time you're born, the squatters have been there for so many generations that no one remembers that it was originally your great-great-grandfather's land. And so, when you grow up, you decide you're going to the courthouse to fight this. You go before the court and you present the deed to the land which has been in the courthouse files for over a century. And the judge says, oh, this deed doesn't mean that anymore. What it really means is that the land belongs to whoever takes it. And this is just symbolic for all the land. Tell me any one of you would accept that. No way. By the way, there's a name for the squatters. Today we call them Palestinians. They're on land that doesn't belong to them. And by the way, Israel welcomes any who come. That is their official policy. Over 20% of their government is made up of Arabs. We go on about the land promises because if the land promises aren't true, then God isn't true. When Jesus said in John 10 that not one of you will be snatched out of my hand. Oh, is that symbolic? No, it's not. Not one of you will be snatched out of his hand because God is a God who keeps his promises. And he's so eager for us to know that he keeps his promises that he repeats them over and over and over and over again. The first feature is a restoration to the land forever. Second feature, a covenant of peace forever. A covenant of peace forever. Verse 26, and I will cut a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we could, of course, highlight the internal qualities of peace. Peace with God. Peace because of God. No more enmity with God. The perfect rest given by the Holy Spirit. All that encompasses the eternal, peaceful delights of being in Christ. I think the more pertinent and noticeable feature of peace here is related to the two themes in this last section, the king and the land. The king, according to Isaiah 9, 6, is the prince of what? Peace. And the land, according to Isaiah 2, 4, is associated with peace because it's associated with the absence of war. They'll enjoy quiet in the land just as the joy of living on the land that is now bountifully fruitful. They'll just enjoy this and enjoy this. And I was trying to think of a way to put this. Why is the land just repeated over and over again? Because it's, the land is much more than just the land. It's a symbol. It's something to hang on to. It's an ethic. It's a hope. It's a, it's a way of life. And I found an example that I think is actually very similar. In the classic J.R.R. Tolkien books of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series, there's a setting, there's a background that provides the foundation and the goal and the contrast 
to the wars and the terrible injustice in the world of Middle Earth. And that setting is the little land called the Shire. And if you've ever read any comments by Tolkien on his reason for the Shire, he would say the Shire was not just a place, it was a, it was a hope, it was a belief. The Shire is described as a wide green country, a land with slow rivers and beautiful forests. It features orchards and gardens and generally just a slow pace of life. And, but the Shire in Tolkien's stories is much more than just a place. It's a place that you remember when you're in the time of trouble. It's a place that you put in your mind when life seems like it's about to take you down. It's the place that the little hobbits, the people of the Shire, long for, even to the point of it being painful to them when they think of how much they miss the Shire. You see, the Shire isn't just a beautiful place. It's a symbol of innocence. It's a symbol of normalcy. It's a symbol of home. That's what the covenant of peace is conveying here. It's the goal of redemptive history for Israel to live in their land with their king looking after them, enjoying the bounty of a delightful life. In fact, the book of Amos ends with this future dream. Amos 9 says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will melt. Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the desolated cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be uprooted from their land which I have given them, says Yahweh your God. The land isn't just the land. The land is a hope. The land is a dream. The land is a future. The land is a symbol of God's faithfulness. And it's the land that keeps the Israelite in hope when all hope seems lost. And there's a third feature, God's temple forever. God's temple forever. Second half of verse 26, And I will give them the land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The temple will be rebuilt in all of its glory. Ezekiel 40, 41 and 42 outlines the exact plans of the temple. So exact you could make a blueprint from it. Ezekiel 43 through 46 describes the specifics of temple worship. This will become the heartbeat of restored Israel once again, finally obeying God as a nation. Yes, sacrifices will be offered again, not somehow as a replacement of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, but for worship purification, for the nation to finally enjoy the covenant promises given as part of obedience. I'll have a lot to say on that in the future, but suffice to say that right now we won't spiritualize away the literal temple, so neither will we spiritualize away the literal sacrifices, and they are not necessarily what you think. They are not a replacement of Christ's sacrifice whatsoever. The temple described in Ezekiel will have a a great river coming out of it going in two directions. Ezekiel 47 tells us in verse 8, God tells Ezekiel, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea 
being made to flow out to the sea and the waters of the sea will be healed. So this is clearly describing a millennial temple because Revelation 21.2 tells us in the final state, there is no longer any sea. So this has to be an in-between time. And we know from Revelation 21.22 that there will be no temple in the new Jerusalem in the final state. So given that, how can Ezekiel 37 here promise that my sanctuary is in their midst forever? How can God make that promise if there's no temple in the final state? Well, Revelation 21.22 says, And I saw no sanctuary in it. Here's the reason. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. So when God says, I'll give you a temple forever, he does. Restoration to the land forever. A covenant of peace forever. God's temple forever. I want to draw out a gospel lesson from this text. And then we still have to answer the question why Ezekiel is is surrounded by a crowd of people, a crowd of Jews in Babylon to hear all of this. Why were they hanging on to every word he was speaking? But I, I want to give you a gospel lesson. The main theme of Ezekiel 37 is spiritual deadness and what that looks like. And in fact, God goes to the trouble to give it a picture. Spiritual deadness, the picture is of bleached, dry piles of bones. And he asks the question of Ezekiel, can these bones live? The clear answer is that spiritual deadness is unrecoverable. It's unrecoverable. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Romans 3.11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Genesis 6.5, and Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Spiritual deadness is unrecoverable. And yet, in evangelicalism in general... The prevailing thought, the majority thought, if I can put it that way, is that there is some level of goodness left in you, left in me, that we might be able to make an independent choice to come to Christ in salvation. This is sometimes called by theologians prevenient grace. For example, the doctrinal statement of one church, fairly local to us, in agreement with many, says this, quote, Mankind's sin nature does not totally render a person incapable of responding to God's call to salvation. Those who accept the call by faith will then be regenerated, born again, born from above. Or to put it this way, it's your responsibility to put the bones together, put the flesh back on, find some muscles somewhere, stick that on there, glue it on, find some sinews, rubber bands, whatever you have to have, put it all together, put some sort of skin on there, and then God will breathe life into you. I said this to some of our staff earlier. Uh, Ezekiel 37 is the most anti-Arminian passage in the Bible. It makes it ridiculous. Instead, Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, see also Ezekiel 37, pile of dry dead bones in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So the answer to the question, can these bones live, is found in Jesus' explanation of the work of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So 
is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Who issued the command for the dried bones to come to life? God did. God did. So it's early in the morning. The prophet Ezekiel in exile since 597 B.C. in Babylon. People at his door. A crowd gathering around him. And they're hanging on every word he says. The Jews listening to Ezekiel that morning had reached the bottom of hopelessness. They were in exile for so long. It it seemed like that there was no hope for the future. And Ezekiel told them that the dry bones of Israel would someday live. Why were they so eager to hear from Ezekiel? Because they had one hope that they still hung on to. One hope that even from afar, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, they had one hope that they still clung to, that even while they were in exile, these taken first in 605, then in 597, they had one more hope, and that was that Jerusalem still stands, and that Jerusalem's still there, and that the temple is still there, and that Jerusalem has withstood not one, but two attacks by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And so there's always hope. And even though they're in exile, they're eight, nine hundred miles away. As long as Jerusalem is there, as long as the temple is there, they have hope. But why are they banging on Ezekiel's door and saying, we must hear from you? Now it happened in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, that those who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me saying, the city has been struck down. That's Ezekiel 33, 21. Now the hand of Yahweh had been upon me in the evening before those who escaped came. And he opened my mouth at that time. They came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. Among the Jews to whom Ezekiel was speaking, many of those in exile, but also were some who had escaped the destruction of Jerusalem, the tearing down, the the murder of countless tens of thousands of people and they escaped and they had only one place to go to run to Babylon to the only other place where they knew that their brothers were and the night before God had given him the visions which we now have as Ezekiel 33 through 39 and right in the middle of that the valley of dry bones you see when Ezekiel was speaking to these people their last hope had just been taken away Jerusalem has fallen there's no more hope but Ezekiel says Oh, but there is hope. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, yes, they shall live again. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. Every one of us desperately hangs on to that truth because there will be a day when our heart flutters and begins to fade when the breath in our lungs becomes more and more labored, when our bodies give out. And the Lord Jesus Christ promised that where I am, you will be also. The Apostle Paul gave us the promise of God that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. If your promises to Israel are changed, or altered, or not true, then we are panicked. But you are the God who never changes. 
And so we rest easy. We thank you for your character. We thank you for your consistency. We thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. We thank you that the dead bones of our souls came to life and the Holy Spirit regenerated us and gave us the faith to believe on Christ. We give you praise every day of our lives until we come face to face with our Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen.